Amen. So, a bit of a recap as we begin our lecture today. Um, as you guys know, in our attempt to trace the scriptural storyline from the beginning in Genesis to the end in Revelation, we've identified uh, several central themes that give the story its structure. And I guess you could say what we're really trying to do in this entire lecture series is just find the backbone of the storyline, right? Not so much all the details, because we can't do that in six weeks, but just that, that thread that gives the story its structure and its shape. Um, and we've done that in identifying these themes. Now, all those themes are present um, in the first pages of Scripture, Again, we've seen that humanity was created to be a royal priesthood, servants in the garden temple, and rulers in the wider world. And their vocation was a combination of those two identities. Humans were to transform the entire earth into the garden. Now remember, only the garden was cultivated, right? Only the garden was in its complete form. The wider world was not. It needed to be cultivated. Um, that was the human commission, was to extend the borders of the garden, something along those lines. Now, we said that communion, the Lord's Supper, the elements of it at least are the model for um, uh, the human vocation. So as rulers, humans take the earth's uncultivated goods, in this case, wheat and grapes, and they transform them through their creative work, into bread and wine, uh, cultural products. So that's what they do as kings or as rulers. And then as priests, what they do is they take their cultural products and they return them to the Lord in worship, right? Of course, that's what we're doing. We're taking our cultural elements, our, our work as rulers, and as priests, we're returning it to the Lord in fellowship with Him. Now, um, we said that also, the human race uh, needed to mature. They were created to rule, but first they needed to grow up. They needed, in other words, to learn wisdom. Hence, humanity was set under the angels, committed to their care, these spiritual beings, until the time of their inheritance arrived. That's Galatians 4, remember? Um, but the serpent... Um, whose identity we learn later in the story, deceived the humans. He took their inheritance from them and claimed it for himself, and their rule was forfeited to him. So then rather than being rulers, humans are uh, slaves. Uh, they're under the dominion of the serpent, right? Uh, John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5, the whole world um, is under the sway of the evil one or the wicked one. Um, John chapter 12, the ruler of this age is about to be cast out. Um, we'll get to some of that stuff later. Anyway, and it's this conflict between the serpent and humanity that drives the story of the Scripture, right? It's not so much about a story between God versus the devil, right? We know he's going to win that one, but it's about the serpent and humanity. So what he's after is not the uncreated throne, but the created throne, humans, the throne that God has granted to humanity. And of course, he got that throne. Um, let's fast forward the story a bit. Humanity is driven out of the garden, 
Uh, remember, they go toward the east, and they travel that road east for quite some time till they get to uh, Shinar, right? And in the plains of Shinar, they erect the Tower of Babel. And we said that the Tower of Babel is basically the antithesis of what the garden was. The garden, remember, is a temple, a place where the Lord's presence dwells, where He meets with humanity, where they fellowship together. The Tower of Babel was a man-made attempt at that very same thing, right? They wanted to build a tower that would reach to heaven, um, and we compared it to um, the ladder that reaches down from heaven in Jacob's vision. So um, they build their own garden, and it's this eternal kingdom, so on and so forth, um, a hub kind of which around the human race was united, but their empire was short-lived because God came down to examine the project, and he judged it. So the human race that was once united is scattered in Babel. We'll come, a little bit, we'll come back to that a little bit later on in the story, actually. So then we came to um, where we finished our lecture last week, which is that in response to humanity's own project to unite and bless themselves, the Lord initiates his own. So from the east, he calls the man Abraham. And he sets him on a journey west, right? Leave your father's house. He calls him from Ur of the Chaldeans, and he brings him west back to symbolically the Lord's presence. And of course, Abraham is given this astounding promise that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So anyway, what Babel tried to achieve, what the people that tried to achieve at Babel, God is going to promise to give humanity through Abraham. And then we kind of peeked ahead in the story. And we looked at how this is accomplished in Christ and in our baptism. In our baptism, we're united to Him. We become His body. And thus, all these desperate, dis, uh, the, these uh, scattered and, and uh, different people are united in Christ, so on and so forth. So that's a, a bad explanation of where we've come from this far. But what I want to do, or what we're going to be looking at this evening, is uh, the story not merely of the Exodus, but um, the events that follow and really the purpose of the calling of the nation Israel. Um, because in them, again, the story takes another massive leap. So I'm going to stop babbling and we're just going to get to it. So let's go to those opening verses of Exodus. I have them on the screen here. Um, well, there they are. I have them on the screen here. If you want, you can turn to Exodus chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, and we'll get the show on the road. All right, Exodus chapter 1, verses 5 and 7, it says, All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were seventy in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation, um, but the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty, so that the land was filled with them. Now, as soon as the book opens, the book of Exodus, it clues us into what's going on with these people. Now, we're jumping in the story a little bit. We left off with Abraham. Abraham has a son, Isaac. Abraham goes to the grave. Isaac has a son, Jacob. 
and he also has another son, Esau. Um, Isaac goes to the grave. And then Jacob, he has 12 sons, the sons of 12 tribes of Israel, later came to be named after them. Um, but he has one son, Joseph. You guys know the story. Joseph winds up in Egypt. He becomes a ruler. His brother sold him into slavery. That's how he got there in the first place. Um, and then a famine hits in Egypt or in uh, Canaan, where they're dwelling, and they have to go down to Egypt. And through God's providence, they run into Joseph, their brother. And it's this long and dramatic story. It's actually the story of Christ, the story of Joseph, right? He's he he sold. Uh, he, his death, he dies, so to speak. He's in prison. He comes out. He's exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh. That's the story of Christ. Anyway, um, they wind up in Egypt. So we're catching them in their migration down to Egypt and uh, the descendants of Abraham. So it tells us that, this our passage does, that in the migration to Egypt, that these people were 70 in number. And of course, that's not an insignificant detail. Does anyone know why the number 70 is important? Hebrew numerology here. 7 times 10. 7 is the number of perfection. I don't know what the number 10 is, but in the Scriptures, and we find this from Genesis 10, the number 70 is the number of the nations, or you could say it's the number of the Gentiles. Um, In the genealogy of Genesis 10, commonly called the Table of Nations, there are 70 names listed. Um, So there and elsewhere, 70 represents all the peoples of the earth. And of course, later on, when um, Christ sends out his disciples in the Gospel of Luke, he sends out 70 disciples. It's symbolic for what's going on there. It signifies the whole earth, all the peoples of the earth. So we have that detail and then we're also told that the people were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Now that language ought to remind us of another passage. And he guesses. I'll read it again. They were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Any ideas? I'm sorry? Yes, it's a deliberate allusion to the creation mandate, the Lord's blessing upon humanity. It's Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Listen to uh, the similarities here. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. What is Israel doing? They're fruitful they're multiplying, and the land was filled with them. So, what this cues us into immediately at the beginning of the book of Exodus is that God's original intention for humanity, fruitfulness, multiplication, multiplication, expansion, um, is coming to realization in these people. Um, Now, that's true, but all people do that, right? That could be said of anybody, any nation. They're going to grow, they're going to multiply, and they're going to fill the land. Um, so the point is not merely that the Israelites are doing something that humans are supposed to do. It's more that they are, in some sense, a new humanity, right? They are, remember, the 70 nations um, that were scattered in Babel are here 
being regathered in Israel. In these burgeoning people, the promise bearers, humanity is being made new. Stephen Dempster, or Stephen Dempster, in his book Dominion and Dynasty, which I've been relying on, says this, it represents humanity, a new humanity with its 70 members, which is destined to restore creation blessing to the world. So we talked about last week that the human race received a fresh start in Abraham as a new Adam, right? The beginning of God's plan to restore everything. And therefore, these, his descendants, constitute a new humanity in his wake. There's 70 people, and they're multiplying, and they're filling the land, and so on and so forth. And it's important to note that the original creation mandate was just that, a mandate. It was an order. After humanity's exile from the garden, the, uh, the mandate, or in the promises to Abraham, and subsequently to Israel, and then to Jacob, that mandate becomes a promise. It no longer lies within human capacity to be what it ought to be. It must come about by the divine promise. And if we rewind in the story a little bit, Abraham is called and then he's given the covenant of circumcision, right? And that's what circumcision is all about. That God's promise to Abraham is not going to be realized by human potency and virility, but by but by divine power. Uh, the Hebrew men are wounded in the flesh that they might learn not to trust in the flesh. Right? God's promises are not going to come about by human agency. So, the original dominion mandate, which was an order, is now turned into a promise. After the fall, God has to accomplish it. So the promise was originally made to Abraham, and then Abraham bore Isaac, and the same promise was repeated to Isaac. This is Genesis chapter 26, verses 3 and 4. God says to Isaac, I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and I will give your descendants all these lands, and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Again, the promise, the dominion mandate is taken up in Abraham. It becomes a promise. That promise is passed on to Isaac. Isaac then uh, has Jacob, who stole the promise from his brother Esau. That's another story. And the promise is repeated to him too. Genesis chapter 8, verses 13 and 14. I will give it to you and to your descendants. He's speaking of the land. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, right? Fill the land. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So, the promise originally given to Abraham is reiterated from one generation to the next. It's not merely Abraham who bears the promise, but also Isaac and Jacob, and indeed, all those after them. So we're coming now to this promise-bearing people um, in uh, Exodus 1, and 
again, they're carrying that promise with them. And of course, to make a long story short, the promise-bearing people wind up in slavery. The story is rather familiar to all of us, so we can skip over a a point-by-point narration of how they wind up in slavery and so on and so forth. The point that I'm trying to make here is that the Lord remembers the covenant. So Israel ends up in slavery in Egypt. They're oppressed. Moses is off in Midian. Many years have passed since he's ever tried to do anything about their condition, Moses. And Exodus chapter 2 um, Verses 23 and 25 say this, Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, because of, yeah, the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groanings, and God, listen, remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and he took notice of them. So a central fact about God emerges here that the Lord is a promise-making and promise-keeping God. And again, let's return to the promise to Abraham just for a moment. The whole aim of the Lord's promise to Abraham was to bless the nations. Remember, that, that's the goal. It was to reunite them and to restore them to their original purpose. But that blessing was, as we have noted, it was to come through Abraham's descendants. We'll go back to the actual words of the promise, Genesis 12, 2. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. So the goal is to bless all the nations of the earth, but the means through which that blessing is going to come is this great nation. And so among other things, the purpose of the Exodus narrative is to demonstrate how this promised great nation comes into existence. So the Lord hears Israel's groaning. He hears the groaning of the descendants of Abraham in Egypt. And it says he remembered the promise that he made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And so here he's acting to bring that promise to fulfillment. So essentially, again, what the Exodus narrative is about is this great nation that was promised to Abraham coming into existence. And of course, the story of how they come into existence prefigures how the church comes into existence. So the church, we are constituted as a people in the waters of baptism, right? That's what makes the church. We're baptized into Christ, and we're baptized really into one another. We become one people with one head. Again, the children of Israel, they are baptized, Um, they are constituted a people um, through the waters of the Red Sea. So we're baptized into Christ, and as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, which is a wonderful typological passage, he says that the Israelites were baptized into Moses. So that's how they became a people, right? They were constituted a people through their baptism in the Red Sea, right? They made it through the water successfully, Pharaoh and his army were drowned. And it's kind of a, a picture of what Christian baptism is. We're leaving behind the old life. Are the enemies of the devil and the flesh and the world? They're drowned in the water, and we emerge as a new people. So it's about the nation of Israel coming to 
existence. So our point here is not a play-by-play of the events, but really to highlight the divine purpose that animates them. God's loyalty to the covenant that he made with Abraham. That's what this is about here. And so now, some 430 years later, that promise is coming to realization. And it seems that at the time, uh, that, that during that, from when God made the promises to the patriarchs to where we find ourselves now in Egypt, um, the people had forgotten about the Lord, um, that they had abandoned the worship of Yahweh, um, that they had began to worship idols in Egypt. We find that from various passages in the prophets um, and in Joshua as well. So they'd forgotten about their God, but he had not forgotten about them, right? He remembers the promise he's making to Abraham, and now that's coming to fulfillment. So you see how what's going on here in Exodus is connected to the promise made to Abraham. So even just with that background information, we have some understanding about the purpose that the Israelite nation serves. But it becomes abundantly clear, and and really in these few verses is where we're going to spend most of our time following, um, it becomes abundantly clear the purpose of Israel in the covenant that the Lord makes with them. So we've moved from a, a, a new humanity to a great nation. Now we're coming to covenant um, on the paper, a kingdom of priests. So our central text is going to be moving forward is Exodus 19, verses 3 through 6. Children of Israel have been brought through the waters. They've wandered in the desert for a little bit. They've learned some very important lessons, and God has brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai. He's descended upon the mountain in fire and smoke, and in this terrible scene, uh, Moses describes it as darkness and gloom, and anyway, the Lord's not seen, but there's just this thick cloud that surrounds him, a little bit of context, and then verse 3 says, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be to me my own, you shall be rather my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There's three things that we'll touch on there my own possession among all the peoples, one, two, um, a kingdom of priests, and three, a holy nation. Those are the three main parts of the covenant. Now, we haven't talked much about the concept of covenant, and we can't treat it in detail here, but to get a handle on covenant, think marriage. Marriage, human marriage, is a analogy to the divine covenant. It's a binding relationship upon man and woman sealed by promises, both parties pledging faithfulness and devotion for the entirety of their lives. In fact, the narrative of the covenant, which spans chapters 19 through 24, which is the center part of the book of Exodus, 
resembles a marriage ceremony. You have the two um, spouses, you could say, God on the one hand and Israel on the other. Then you have Moses, who is the uh, officiant, you could say. This is backed up by Galatians 3, where um, Paul says that the covenant is uh, mediated through Moses, right? So you have Moses kind of overseeing the covenant between God and humanity. There are vows of sorts or stipulations, right? The Ten Commandments, obviously. After the Ten Commandments, the nation of Israel basically says, I do. All the words that you said, we're going to obey them. They, they acknowledge that. Um, and then after the I do, all that part of the, the, the wedding ceremony, there's a, 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 a celebration, a feast after. Moses and the elders of Israel go up to the mountain and it says they, um, they eat and drink in the Lord's presence. Right? It's, it's, a, it's a wedding ceremony, um, analogous to that at least what's happening in the covenant. God is becoming the God of these people, and these people are becoming the people of this God. Now, the covenant made with the nation of Israel, however, is different from the other covenants that have come before it. Remember, and I tried to point this out, I may have not been very clear about it, but Abraham, the covenant made to him, is reiterated to Isaac, it's reiterated to Jacob, and by extension, their descendants. The covenant that's going on here is not another reiteration of that. It's something new. It's something altogether different. It is a conditional covenant. Um, we didn't treat it, but when God made the covenant with Abraham, um, and we talked about this, I think I talked about it with Mike last week, um, they, they cut a covenant, so to speak. Anyway, Abraham falls asleep during the process. He doesn't participate in it. And it's God um, in Abraham's dream. This is, uh, this is uh, uh, Genesis 15. It's God who um, commits to the covenant. It's unconditional. Abraham has to believe. He has to be faithful. But ultimately, everything rests upon God. What's going on here with Israel is something different. And we'll come to that in a minute. But if we wanted to sum up the purpose of the covenant with Israel, at least partially, we can frame it as a return to the garden. So this marriage ceremony, Exodus 19 through 24, what's happening? Well, the Mosaic Covenant institutes a return to the beginning. We're, we're going back. It's a real return, but it's only partial. So God elects and commissions the nation to be, in um, the language of our verse up here, a kingdom of priests. And of course, that priestly context, if you guys can remember back to our first lesson, it hints at the garden. Anytime we're talking priest, we should think garden, where the first humans served as priests. But it's explicit. So it's implicit there, but it becomes explicit in the Song of Moses. So after um, the Pharaoh and his army are drowned in the Red Sea, um, after the Lord saved Israel, she sang this song. It's Exodus chapter 15, verses 17 through 18. Um, it's the verse on your paper there. It says, You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which you have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. 
So the nation's liberation and the subsequent covenant are introduced um, and framed in Edenic language, right? The garden themes abound. You're going to plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, uh, your dwelling, your sanctuary, right? Those are deliberate allusions to the garden. Again, which was on a mountain, which was the Lord's dwelling, which was the first sanctuary. So the Lord had rescued the, the nation of Israel, they sang, to bring them from their bondage and to plant them in the mountain, the place that God has made for his dwelling. So the formation of the nation, the institution of the law, the creation of the tabernacle, the inheritance of the promised land, it can all be depicted as a partial return to the Garden of Eden. Again, Stephen Dempster, Dominion and Dynasty, he says, the goal of the Exodus is thus the building of the Edenic sanctuary so the Lord can dwell with his people, just as he once was to the first human beings. So God rescues Israel, and the plan is a return to the garden. And of course, constructed in the nation's midst, if you go on later to Numbers and you look at the construction or, or the, the way that God had the children of Israel um, uh, mapped out, really, where they were supposed to be, the, the sanctuary, the garden, the tabernacle was right in the middle. So the Lord enters into covenant relationship with the nation, and he comes near to them to dwell with them. And so we treated this in our first lecture. Again, the garden was the original temple, the meeting place between the Lord and his people. And the later temples, the tabernacle, the first and second temples, and the coming third temple are replicas. They're designed to imitate the original created state. They're, uh, uh, again, replicas of the garden. So what I want us to see here is that coming to pass in the creation of the tabernacle is something that has not happened since the beginning. Humans, for the very first time since Adam and Eve, are allowed to enter into the divine presence. Remember, they were expelled from the garden and the cherubim were stationed as guardians to keep them from entering the divine presence again. And they journeyed east, away from the Lord's presence. But the construction of the tabernacle, in the construction of the tabernacle, humanity is invited back. In their tabernacle, uh, demarcating the holy of holies, essentially the throne room, from all other places was a veil. Right? The tabernacle was constructed, um, there was the court of the Gentiles, they could go only into the court of the Gentiles. And then there was, I forget the name of it, but another sanctuary, another marquee, another place where only Israelites could go, and then another place where men could go, and then only priests could go, and then the Holy of Holies where only the high priest could go once a year. Now what was the, uh, you guys know this, what was the Holy of Holies marked off by? A curtain, right, the veil. And what figures were woven into the veil? Cherubim, right? 
the, the guardians. They're guarding the throne room. Just like they're there in the Garden of Eden or, or uh, outside the garden, keeping humans from getting in. That's the Lord's throne room. You're not coming in. You've sinned. No entrance. So in the temple, there's the cherubim. Um, but this time, guess what? Humans are allowed to pass. So a momentous thing is happening. We're getting to go in this new covenant back into the Lord's presence. I'll, I'll, I'll read this quote from Peter Lightheart. He, he puts it this way. Yahweh drove Adam and Eve out of the garden. He invited Aaron, that's the high priest, and his sons in. For the first time since Eden, a human being stood before the Creator to serve. Not Noah, not Abraham, not Jacob or Joseph. None of them passed by the cherubim to take up the Adamic task to stand and serve within Yahweh's garden. So when the high priest, Aaron, and it had to be one of his descendants, the human race is invited back into the Lord's garden. The fearsome cherubim allow him to enter once a year. So it's clear then how great a leap the plan of redemption takes in the Mosaic Covenant. The patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, for all their greatness, were not given this privilege. All right, they were still exiled from the Lord's presence, so to speak. But in this new covenant, something so big is happening, something so mighty is happening, that God reinstitutes the garden, and He establishes a priesthood. Right? That was what humanity was originally supposed to be. So that vocation is being restored. So Aaron, the first high priest, he goes into the garden, or into the temple rather, to serve and keep, right? What Adam and Eve were supposed to do in the garden. So humanity's priestly role is being restored. We've been hinting at that thus far. We've been pointing toward that, and now here it's becoming a reality. The garden is opening. It's open once again, right? This is a great and uh, amazing thing that's happening. Now, however, it's only a partial opening. The garden is reinstituted, but only partially. Again, it's not all humanity that's invited back in. Um, it's not even the entire nation of Israel. It's one man. And he's only allowed to enter once a year. So it's not, the doors aren't burst open wide. It's very partial opening that's happening here. Um, it's a big step forward, but it's still accommodated to sin, right? There's still a problem there um, that has yet to be resolved. Now, I think when we can picture the tabernacle as a, a reinstitution of the garden, um, and the priesthood as a reinstitution of humanity's original vocation, albeit under the conditions of sin, all the strange purity rituals and sacrifices of the Mosaic Covenant um, are put into their proper context. And though they seem very strange to us, now maybe they're not so strange. The garden, remember, is a holy space, and impure and holy things cannot enter a holy space, hence the guarding cherubim. They're stationed to protect the garden's sanctity. So 
The garden is reinstituted partially in the tabernacle. The holy space returns, but humans remain impure and unholy. The the guarding cherubim will not allow them to pass through in such a state. They have to be made clean. So God puts the garden back, but humanity is still unholy, or Israel is still unholy, and they need to be made clean. So the ritual sacrifices, um, the offering of these various animals at these various times, under these various circumstances, the ceremonial washings that you had to do to enter the temple, um, the regulations about not touching dead bodies, about not eating certain kinds of foods, about all kinds of strange things, bodily emissions. All of that is about entrance into the garden. The Lord instituted these things as various means to make His people, particularly the priests, and most particularly the high priests, a holy people, capable of entering His presence and communing with Him. So, God redeems this nation. He enters into covenant with him, with the nation. He comes to dwell with them. The garden is reconstructed in the tabernacle, and then he gives them this elaborate system to cleanse themselves so that they could enter back into his presence. So again, we're taking another massive step forward. Not only is the garden back, but humans, their sinfulness is being repealed in a certain sense. They're being made clean now to enter the Lord's presence. Again, I want to read from Lightheart um, in his book, Delivered from the Elements of the World. He says, the no to impurity, right, that's all the, those regulations, is ordered to the yes of welcome. Yahweh did not descend from Sinai to the ark asking, what fences can I set up that will keep my neighbors from disturbing my peace? He came saying, you can draw near, but only under certain conditions only in a state that makes it safe for you to approach. The accents in the rules of impurity is not on exclusion, which is presupposed. The text focuses on the details of purity, but the telos, the aim of these regulations, is to describe mechanisms for removal of impurity, which means the closure of distance. Does that make sense? I want to make sure we're on the same page before moving forward. So the tabernacle comes back, but the people got to get, they got to get cleaned up. And they do it through sacrifices, they do it through washings, they do it through obedience to all the stipulations of the covenant. So thus we can take the Mosaic covenant in its entirety, which to our eyes looks quite inhospitable. Right? We look at back in there and say, wow, that looks pretty harsh. Like God's, there's a certain distance, there's a certain standoffishness about God that we would read that and think, wow, that's not, you know, that's a far cry from what we find in the New Testament. Well, it's actually ordered toward hospitality. God's coming back, but he's saying, okay, if I'm going to be near to you, because holiness is dangerous, right? You don't want to, in an unpure state, be next to a holy God. If he's going to come back, if the garden's going to be reestablished, humanity needs to be prepared for the divine presence, and that's what, that's what all that's about. So it's actually a very, very gracious system. It's not about exclusion or distance. It's about closing that distance and bringing the Lord near. So 
there's this priestly dimension um, that's being reinstituted in the covenant, um, and we're taking a massive step forward with the children of Israel. So very, very cool. Now, the next half of the covenant um, pertains to humanity's royal vocation. Remember, humans were created to be uh, a royal priesthood or a holy nation. Um, And here in the second half of the covenant, um, humanity's royal vocation is uh, reinstituted partially. Humans were created to rule as the divine image upon the earth, and that vocation is restored in the covenant. Again, let's go back to the words there. I'll just pick it up at the end. Um, In verse 5, which it says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, we covered that, and a holy nation. So as a holy nation, the Lord's nation, Israel was to be a prince among all other nations. They were elevated above them. Now I want to return to that theme in just one moment, but first I want to reintroduce a theme that has somewhat disappeared from the picture. We didn't talk about it all last week, and that is spiritual beings. In our first lecture, we identified um, their role as guardians and teachers over the human race. As the scripture later says in Hebrews, they're ministering spirits. Their role is to serve humans. So it was their commission from the very beginning to bring the human race to maturation. That in time, the human race might receive its inheritance and become lords. Again, this is Galatians 4. So, quite obviously, the role of these angelic beings, at least for some of them, had become disfigured by sin. We're not told when this fall happens in the spiritual realm. We're not really given a lot of details about this heavenly rebellion. But it is presupposed on the initial pages of the Bible. The serpent shows up, and he's already dead set against what God has planned for humanity. So something happened there, and the role of these spiritual beings has been disfigured by sin. Now, they still maintained um, their role over the human race, but rather than as wise teachers, they had become uh, mutinous or else incompetent rulers. If you want to look more into this, read Psalm 82. Um, It's a fascinating psalm where some translations obscure it because the word Elohim, which is the Hebrew word for a spiritual being, can also be used for a ruler. So an Elohim can be a ruler, but it says God sits in the council, and and really what it pictures is the Lord talking to these other spiritual beings, um, or to these lesser spiritual beings, infinitely lesser, and he's rebuking them. And what is he rebuking them for? for inspiring injustice among humans. It's a fascinating psalm, Psalm 82, read on it. Um, So, uh, again, what I want to say is the picture isn't very clear. Um, Even in the New Testament, where that revelation comes to its complete expression, there still remains significant ambiguities. My point is simply this. All humanity was given over to their corrupt rule, right? Humans were to be over the angels eventually when they reach their maturity. 
but they sinned and therefore they became slaves of these evil spiritual beings, right? That's what the New Testament talks about when it calls Satan the ruler of this world, when it says that our war is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, rulers, dominions, so on and so forth. So humanity is basically given up to their care. All nations, all people, except for one people. Listen to Deuteronomy 14, 9. It's a very interesting verse. It says, And beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. So, it was widely presumed in that time that the host of heaven, in our terminology, stars, planets, heavenly bodies, were literally spiritual beings. Now, of course, that rings strange to our modern ears, but it was a quite sophisticated doctrine, and it has much to recommend to us. Regardless, the point is, Israel must be diligent not to worship such heavenly beings, real or imagined, because the Lord has allotted to all the peoples, or rather, has allotted them to all the peoples under the whole heaven. So he says, don't worship them, because the Lord has given all the nations over to them. So this takes us back to the Tower of Babel. This takes us back to the Tower of Babel. Remember, after that story, um, the biblical narrative takes a massive bottleneck. It was, it was universal. It was about all the nations. And then suddenly God leaves the nations to themselves and he calls this one man Abraham. And the rest of the story from there on out is about Abraham and his descendants. What's going on there? Well, if we put two and two together, it's pretty clear At the Tower of Babel, at least in their rebellion, humanity was definitively turned over to these mutinous heavenly beings, right? In our language of Deuteronomy 4.19, God allotted allotted humanity to them. He gave them over. And what happens now is that the Lord deals specifically with this one people. So he commits the nations over, and he takes on the people of Abraham. And again, this is indicated in the very titles of these spiritual beings. They're called principalities, dominions, thrones. And all these titles imply jurisdiction, right? Principalities, powers, thrones. If you go to the book of Daniel, we find out there's a prince of Persia, some sort of heavenly being who has jurisdiction over these people. There's the prince of Greece who has jurisdiction over these people, right? Um, So very clear in the heavenly realm is that The Lord is over all, but then there's this subsidiary realm of spiritual beings who have maybe, you could say, a more direct authority over these particular peoples and pockets of the world, right? They have this jurisdiction. And now if you go to ancient angelology, not just nations, but over the physical elements, over all kinds of different things, it's very fascinating. But the point is that God gives the nations over to the care of the, well, not really the care, the, to, to, the, to slavery to these beings, and that leads to idolatry and unrighteousness, right? It leads to all the pagan religions, but the Israelites, among all the people of the world, are under the more direct care of the Lord. Now, here's the point. This opens, uh, this puts new light on how we understand 
everything prescribed in the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, the sacrifices, the teaching of the, of the law, the, um, uh, the, the, the reorganizing of their calendar, all of it is heavenly wisdom. And it's designed to bring this particular people to maturity, that much closer to its inheritance. Hence, in Galatians chapter 3, the apostle calls the law, uh, again, a synonym for the Mosaic Covenant, he calls it a tutor, or as other translations have it, a schoolmaster. The law was given to train the nation up in the divine ways until the seed would come to bring the nations to maturity. And so Moses says this explicitly. Um, just before that, in Deuteronomy 4.6, he says, Speaking of the law, or the commandments, so keep them and do them. For that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say... Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So you have all these other nations under the care of these um, mutinous spiritual beings, but God has chosen this one people to bring them up into maturity. Remember, Adam and Eve were not mature in the garden. They were infants. They were children. Israel is still childlike, and God is bringing him up to maturity. So this brings us back to our earlier theme. Um, and the passage is up there. And again, what are we highlighting this time um, is the beginning of the uh, covenant. It says, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, so on and so forth. Um, he says, Then you shall be my possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So our point here is that Israel's election is set within a global context. The Lord lays claim to the entire earth and every nation therein, but this nation, in a particular sense, is his own possession. Right? There's something unique. Of course, all the world is the Lord's. Or, or that, that's uncontested. But in a special sense, this nation is his possession. So he enters into a covenant relationship with Israel, and that covenant sets them in unique relation to the Lord, right? They're special to him, but it also sets them in a unique relationship to the other nations. Now, most scholars want to relate Israel's uniqueness in relation to the other nations um, to their priestly calling. Right, they want to say that they're, they're, they mediate God to the world. This nation does. I think that's mistaken. I don't think that their priestly calling is abstractly related to their role among the nations, but I think that their priestly calling is quite concretely related to their, um, uh, to their service in the tabernacle. Right? That, that's their priestly calling. So rather, it makes more sense to relate their unique role among the nations, to their royal calling. This nation, in a corporate sense, is called to be the divine image to the nations. Right? They're being restored to God's image. Again, Stephen Dempster, who we've, Stephen Dempster, we've been relying on, he says, the purpose of this covenant is that an obedient Israel may bring God's creation blessing to the world. If Israel becomes a holy nation, it will image God to the nations. 
what was humanity originally intended to be? Are they were created in the image of God? And here that image is coming to expression. So humanity's royal vocation is partially restored in Israel, most particularly in the king. We'll talk about this next week, but also in the nation as a whole. So it's a, it's a princely nation. It's set above and before the other nations because it's in covenant with the Lord. Again, listen to Moses' words, Deuteronomy 26, 18 and 19. The Lord has today declared you to be his people, a treasured possession, as he promised you, and that you should keep all his commandments. Listen, and that he will set you high above the nations which he has made for praise, for fame, and honor. And you shall be a consecrated people to the Lord your God as he has spoken. So as the Lord's treasured possession, Israel is set high above the other nations, and that for a very specific purpose, for praise and fame and honor. So even if you look at that passage a little bit deeper, you can tell that it's dependent upon the Abrahamic covenant. What did God promise? That he would make Abraham a great nation and that he would give him a great name. So here God sets this nation above all other nations. And then why? For praise, for fame, and for honor, to have a great name. So taking a step back, we can see in the covenant that God makes with Israel a huge move forward in the plan of redemption. Humanity's priestly role is recovered to some extent. Humanity's kingly role is recovered to some extent. Now, well, before we move forward, I want to make sure there's no questions there. Are we all on the same page? Sorry, it's a lot of information. Okay, so last we want, last we want to come to this uh, look at the covenant, the uniqueness of this covenant in relation to the other ones. So upon the nation is placed a vocation that is at once both great and terrible. It has become God's treasured possession, but subsequently it's called to the most radical obedience, right? Because it's in covenant with the Lord, it's not allowed to live like the other nations. It has to obey the words of the covenant. And that remains the most unique thing about the covenant made with Israel. Unlike all other covenants, it's conditional. The covenant that God makes with Noah the covenant that God makes with Abraham and then reiterates to Isaac and Jacob, they're all unconditional. This one, however, is conditional. We'll find there's another promise to David, also unconditional. So it's, it's gracious and merciful throughout, yet it's dependent upon the nation's capacity to obey. Again, Exodus 19, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, says the Lord, then you shall be my own possession. So they've got to, they've got to do their part. So though things take a step forward, this conditional element to the covenant destabilizes our confidence. Right? We're thinking this is great. Things are moving forward. The plan of redemption is on a roll. And then this conditional part is like, okay, now that a little bit of fear is introduced. And a question is raised. Is the nation going to be faithful to the covenant and bring the blessing to the nations? That's Israel's purpose. 
if you be faithful to the covenant, you're going to bring blessing. So we're thinking, can they do it? And that question hangs over the entire story from here on out. But it doesn't take too long, and we get our answer. And you guys know the story. As soon as the covenant is ratified, the ink hasn't even dried yet, the nation breaks it. Now, the passage is too long and multifaceted, but essentially, the people commit adultery against their God. While Moses is away on the mountain, still getting instructions about the covenant, the people construct an idol to worship in Moses' absence. And Aaron's famous words, presumably gesturing toward the idol, the golden calf, he says, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. The first two commandments just absolutely shattered, and we haven't even, we haven't even got off the ground. So, and, and then what's even better is that God, you, you know this exchange, Exodus 33 and 34, with God and Moses, very anthropomorphic, but essentially God says, Moses, I'm going to destroy these people, so just step aside for a minute. And then Moses intercedes, right? And he says, Lord, remember your promises. What are the nations going to think if you kill these people who you brought out of Egypt? You, you know, they're going to think you weren't strong enough to do it. You weren't faithful enough. And so, of course, God um, um, is convinced by Moses' reasoning, very anthropomorphic, right? Um, and, and he recuts the covenant. Remember, Moses goes down from the mountain and he breaks the, the tablets and then he destroys the idol and he turns it into dust and then he mixes it with the water and makes the people drink it. And then he tells his, his, the nation, get your sword and let's go kill everybody who disobeyed the Lord. And I think they wipe out like 3,000 people. It's, it's a crazy thing. But then the Lord recuts the covenant and he gives new tablets. So the covenant is remade right there. So the Lord's like, okay, fresh start once again. Um, it's more complicated than that. But then the nation breaks it again. So whatever hopes might have been placed in Israel that they could keep the covenant and bring this blessing to the nations are utterly dashed. Thus, we learn from the very outset that the Mosaic covenant is doomed to fail. Now Moses, as the nation's leader, learned this firsthand. But toward the end of his life, um, he, remember, he wasn't allowed to go into the promised land. Um, the Lord explicitly told them this as he was getting ready to die. He says in Deuteronomy 31, 16, Behold, you're about to lie down with your fathers, and this people will arise and play the harlot with strange gods of the land into the midst of which they are going, and will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. So it becomes clear the problem lies not with the covenant. It's good and it's right. But the problem lies with the people. Quite simply, they're incapable of keeping it. And another place Moses elaborates that that latter half of Deuteronomy is so pessimistic. Um, Deuteronomy 29.4, Moses says, Yet to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. Like, they're right about to enter the promised land, and Moses says, you're not going to be able to do it. 
And the problem is the nation's spiritual insensitivity and dullness. They have hearts and eyes and ears, but they don't work. Psalm 78 um, rehashes um, the nation's entire history to make this very point. Um, and it's actually a really instructive psalm if you want to read it. It's, it's a little long, but the whole point is that they're incapable of keeping the covenant, the people of Israel. It says, so they repented, and it says, but they deceived him with their mouth and lied to him with their tongue, for their heart was not steadfast toward him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. So, God makes this covenant. It's filled with all this expectation, but the problem is the people. And amidst these bleak pronouncements, there still remains hope. In no uncertain terms, Moses declares that the nation will break the covenant and that as a result, they will be sent into exile. But on the far side of that exile, the Lord would do something new. Again, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. The Lord your God, listen, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. So in these words, the nation's true problem emerges. It's that their hearts aren't circumcised. That is, their hearts are fleshly. And as long as they remained in that fleshly condition, there is no abiding hope for obedience. They can only break the covenant. They can only fall short of the covenant. And the Mosaic covenant, though it can articulate that righteousness, it can say, one, two, three, four, five, six, all the way to ten. This is what God wants from you. It cannot deliver that righteousness. It can't make someone obey that righteousness. And the reason is because it's weakened by the flesh. Romans chapter 8, verse 3. What the law could not do, weakened as it was by the flesh, God did by sending His Son. But that's we'll get to that. Again, uh, it's clear. Romans chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. The very commandment that promised life, remember all that expectation, it's going to happen, proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So put another way, though the commandment was ordered toward life, that's what it was given for, it brought death because of human weakness. The law is spiritual, but I'm carnal sold under sin. So sin in the flesh, they overpowered the law and they rendered it ineffective. It was supposed to be an ally and sin turned it into an enemy. And there's more to say here because that's maybe talking from a merely human perspective. On the divine perspective, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 that God gave the law to bring a curse from the very beginning. Um, I don't know if we'll get into that later. I've thought about it. It's really complicated. But it basically, basically, he says the law was given for transgressions. It was given to increase the trans transgression. So something about the law and it bringing a curse was God's intention from the very beginning. But that's for another time. And we'll close here in just a second, guys. Or actually, right now. So what I want us to see is simply that the human problem is coming to clearer and clearer articulation. So if we thought this, the biblical storyline was going to be 
um, creation, this beautiful vocation, and then a fall, and then just kind of a, a slow but steady triumph back to that original spot. That's not how it's going to be. As God reinstitutes the plan, it only gets harder for humanity to obey. And, and I think the, the thing that the covenant tells us is that humanity needs to be changed from a fleshly race to a spiritual race. Humanity needs to be resurrected and transfigured. And of course, the Lord promises to do that. We'll end with the promise to Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law, listen, within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach Again, each man his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, failed because of us, because of our weakness. So God says, okay, I'm going to make a new covenant, and this time what I'm going to do, rather than having a law written on tablets of stone, 2 Corinthians 3, read that passage with this in mind, rather than a tablet of stone, I'm going to write it on their hearts. I'm going to put my law within them, and then we get the words of the covenant, I will be their God, they will be my people. They're not going to have to teach each other, know the Lord. Why? Because they're all going to know me. And so remember, I said the problem was that humanity had a, a fleshly heart. It was uncircumcised. How is it going to be circumcised? The giving of the Spirit. We're, again, we're looking ahead in the story here. That's what this new covenant is all about. If humanity is going to obey, if humanity's going to, the blessing is going to come, it's got to come through the Spirit who turns us from fleshly people into spiritual people. So, um, there's more to the, obviously... There's more to the story. We'll tell it a little bit next week because we'll see that Israel goes into exile. Um, but we're going to be focusing mainly on the Davidic covenant. But that, th- these words hang over all of Israel's existence. And when the prophets rebuke Israel, they rebuke them for not being faithful to the covenant. And the um, curse of the covenant is that they'll be sent into exile. Anyway, that's what happens. And uh, we'll get to that next week. But I want to open it up for any questions about maybe some things about the relationship between New Covenant, Old Covenant, cursing. I don't know, there's a lot there, and I just want to give room for any questions before we're up on out of here. Yes, sir? Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, let's uh, we'll, we'll back up and clarify a little bit about the purifying role there. So, 
the sacrifices of the Old Covenant are with a view toward the sacrifice of Christ to come. So they're effective, but they're only effective in relation to that, right? So if you look at Hebrews, he compares the sacrifices of the Old Covenant to the sacrifices of the New Covenant. And basically what he says is that, or the sacrifice of the New Covenant, and basically what he says is that the sacrifices in the Mosaic Covenant were only partial. They could only temporarily forgive sin or remove sin, right? Um, and if they could actually do the job, then why, are, why would we still have to offer them year by year, day by day? Um, but when Christ comes, all that's done. So there was a real purity that was being enacted there, and he was bringing them closer. Now, this role of the law bringing a curse is a little bit more complicated. So he's blessing them, but the part of the curse, and this is why it's so complicated, is that really no one knows what Paul means when he says it was added for transgressions. So if you read Galatians 3, he says that the law brings a curse and that Christ died to remove that curse from us. Um, what is the intention of the curse? I don't know. Um, I think it has something to do with heaping up sin. I, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm at a loss and that's kind of... I, I, so yes, there's a blessing and a cursing going on there. <laughs> I'll think about it and get you an answer next week. But, but yeah, but yeah there's a, it was added for transgressions. I don't know, read Galatians 3 and come to whatever conclusion you want. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm sorry. <laughs> All that for nothing. Um, any other questions? Mike. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I, I think, because uh, I was thinking about that, of course, we still teach each other, um, and we still do that, but, and that may be with a view toward um, toward the, the age to come, because the new covenant is obviously eternal. Um, but I think maybe you can take it in the sense of, maybe generally, because again, he makes the covenant with Israel there. It's not the Gentiles, yet we're included in it, so... I think there's some wiggle room there to interpretively about how to understand that. Well, I think that's exactly it, right? When he says, I will put the law within them. And so there's this inherent inherent knowledge. Um, and so the need of teaching is, uh, is lessened. They're not going to need to know the Lord. So the question then becomes is, so that's what it's saying. So the question then becomes, well, why are we still teaching each other in the new covenant? You know, and, and, and so how does that Sure, and if you take the if you take the um, the the line that this refers to the Holy Spirit, um, maybe that clarifies a little bit because there's a knowledge from the Holy Spirit that's deeper than what my words can tell you. Right? It's an intuitive 
spirit to spirit. Then these words will be true, which is, uh, I think, instructive because in Revelation 21 and 22, we find these words, I will be their God and they should be my people, the words of the covenant. So yeah, that's, that's very good. Bob? Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. It is a it is a direct reversal of Romans one, a, a further descent away from the Lord, and here that's reversed, and the Spirit gives us that knowledge that is that communion rather that is deeper than knowledge. Holly. Yes. We know in part. And I think I think maybe now that you guys are talking, I feel I can, I, I I maybe the interpretation I would want to come to is is just that that progressive fulfillment of these words because we do know in part, but we will know in full. And the thing is, we're given the Spirit right now, but only as the the down payment, the pledge of our inheritance to come. You know, so we have the Spirit. Yeah, I think there probably is that strong future dimension to those words, but you could still say that that's happening right now. Know the Lord. I mean, it's like when someone comes to Christ, they know the Lord in their heart. That's much deeper than what I could ever, you know, put on paper and say, here you go. You know, it's uh, beyond deeper than understanding. So yeah, I would want to go with that progressive movement. Um, we have the, we know in part, we know in full. We have the Spirit as our down payment, but in the end, God will be all in all, and there's going to be, it's going to be face-to-face, so. Liz? Yes. Thank you. 
Yeah, that's... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we'll take those. Uh, we'll go reverse order. So we'll come to this next week, but what you find is that the covenant, the way it's portrayed under King David and under King Solomon, is that it comes to almost partial fulfillment. So the way that, especially Solomon, the way he's depicted is that the words of the covenant and, and the blessings of the covenant are all coming upon him um, in his obedience. So what you find in the covenant is that they're destined to fail. So I'm setting that like right up front for our purposes here. But in the actual storyline, it is very much a... And then with King Solomon, it comes to its height. And we'll notice all the words that it uses to describe him uh, and his reign make reference back to that. He is a blessing to the nations. Queen Sheba, queen, the queen, queen of Egypt, she comes and she wants to hear all about him and he's got all this fame. And, and anyway, it's, it's like in Solomon, there's like a mini fulfillment, but then Solomon, um, his wives turn his heart away from the Lord and he goes that same path. Um, and it's really David who's the, who's the symbol. But So there is this, uh, all throughout Israel's um, history, they could get there. Um, we know, having read the story, they won't. But that's what the prophets are all about. Return to the covenant. God's not going to forsake you. God's still going to bless you, so on and so forth. Um, but then even in there, the promise comes to take on even bigger dimensions than before. So there is that. that We're, we're speaking ahead of the story, right? Um, and, and then the first part is just simply, in Genesis 2... Adam is put in the garden, and it says that he was put in the garden to tend and to keep it. We find from later on in the Scripture that those two words in Hebrew are only used together in the context of priestly service. So what the priest would do in the temple is exactly what Adam would do in the garden, tend and keep. And uh, keeping is like guarding. Remember, it's a sacred space, so when the serpent got in there, Adam should have been doing his priestly role defending the garden because again when someone was supposed to enter into the temple who wasn't they would the priest would bear the sword and strike them down and and we find stories later like that so they were keeping it and they were also tending it which is basically the generic word for serve so it's a religious context so they were serving in the temple and that was adam's original role uh but then in israel that's restored um but only partially does that make sense of, of those questions And then if you read Revelation 1, um, what's that, Bob? Revelation 1. Yep, he's made us the kingdom of priests. And if you read 1 Peter 2, the church takes that same role. Anyway, any other questions? Okay, let's pray.